two hours or did we move it back two hours is that where this confusion came in for you um yeah well i think i actually understood the where we ended up in terms of time um the problem was last night turned out to be a late night i was doing my basketball commentary side gig Mm. um and so i was a bit hyped by the time that finished which led to a late night trying to fall asleep and uh I obviously needed my rest, so. (laughs) (laughs) Clearly. Well, it's working. You look wonderful. I was woken up by a FaceTime call. Five minutes. You just woke up, literally? (laughs) Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, oh, good morning. (laughs) (laughs) And I should explain for everyone listening, this is technically my fault because I had a calendar stuff up and asked for a rescheduling of which my two co-hosts, Jason and Andrew were very understanding and a very special guest who I very professionally bumped so that we could wonderfully see Andrew in his pajamas. Andrew, you organized this. Would you like to introduce our special guest who I've already screwed around? <laughs> yes. Yeah. This is like, you know, everybody has a, has a white whale. Is it, is it a white whale? Is that the phrase we use? It's sort of the person, the person that you think, gosh, if I ever if I ever met that person, that would be a real feather in my cap um, and an honour. This person, this this person joining us, is that person for me? Um, what we we have here, Scott Hacker, who is a I, I don't want to I don't want to pres, pres, be presumptuous in my description, but he's the guy that he really introduced me and taught me about BOS, the operating system, and he. And he did that through a book, which was had a red cover. It was really thick because this is back at pre, pre um, digital book stuff, right? There it is. The, Jap- the Japanese edition, actually, is what you're looking at there. Well, I didn't. Well, we, we get, um, yeah, I had the English version. Um, I read it cover to cover and it was kind of like one of those moments in life where your your ma- mind expands and, and you think, wow, there's other stuff out there that's just incredible. Um, so it's Scott Hacker. And then I would fo- I followed his blog and website and just thought, this guy's amazing. And he had a really good way of writing. And uh, it was just one of those people that always stayed with me. And I know he got into photography and that kind of stuff. And then as I grew, I sort of lost the digital connection with the man. But since this podcast has come along, we had the opportunity to talk about computer systems and operating systems. BOS comes up from time to time. And I thought, wouldn't it be an amazing opportunity to get Scott as a guest on our show? Like that'll happen. (laughs) Maybe not after this session anyway. We'll see. We're lucky for once. (laughs) (laughs) But I don't want to go on and on and on. I should let the man speak for himself. But it's truly an honor for me. I don't know about you guys, but it's an honor for me to be looking through a Zoom window at the author of that amazing red book, Scott Hacker. Thank you very much for joining us on Hemispheric Views. I'm so happy to be here, and I'm just flattered and flattened and floored by by that introduction. I mean, you know, back in the 
in the you know late 90s when i was involved in the bos community i was you know kind of used to being somewhat recognized but that just went away immediately as soon as the whole b enterprise tanked and i went back to normal life um and and you know learning from you that i'm a white whale to someone <laughs> it just makes you wonder like how many how many lurking whales are out there anyway <laughs> but anyway yeah it's fun it's really fun to be here and i've been listening to the podcast for the past few weeks and and really enjoying the heck out of it oh that's awesome thank you so much that's a real that's a real if imagine if you had, had listened and not liked it and then had to send the the awkward <laughs> email actually on second thoughts <laughs> turns out now that i've heard it it's off yeah <laughs> now i'd like to oh, sorry. Yeah, it, okay i just wanted to jump in very quickly ahead. and say bos is something that i had heard of and i frequently uh, i frequently get made fun of on this podcast i think it's fair to say for being the uh younger one andrew says that i finished primary school or elementary school about six years ago is that right andrew if that oh, if that like you are very much yeah, the baby great. of our group thank you and we thank love you, so you for it. but it's not about me i just thought it would be interesting to very quickly get a summary or a rundown of what b was all about from scott to kind of contextualize this because i had heard of the name i'd been kind of generally familiar but i thought i should do some actual research before we jump on because i didn't have that tactile you know usage experience i wasn't there to really kind of have a go at it so scott can you give us maybe some context for what that was and why andrew was so inspired by the system yeah the absolutely system? so so late 90s uh you know we were on windows you know nt 3. whatever and mac os 9 and uh you know these operating systems had uh, accreted and accumulated gunk over the course of a couple of decades as software does and had just gotten become bloated and tangled and it was really hard to sort of reveal what CPUs of that time were even capable of because the operating systems were so, you know, just chewing gum and bailing wire. So Jean-Louis Gasset, who was the head of research and development at Apple at the time, um, realized the only, only way clear was to start fresh. He was like, we just need to build an operating system from the ground up to take advantage of today's CPUs and it's unencumbered by backwards compatibility and all of that. So um, he split out of Apple and assembled this team. And this is, you know, a Silicon Valley heyday. And there's lots of venture capital um, and, you know, lots of good engineers. And they um, decided to create an operating system that had, you know, protected memory, preemptive multitasking, a database-like like file system, which was just like mind-blowing at the time that you could treat your file system like a database. We did some really cool things with that. Um, and, you know, had uh, GNU underpinnings, um, you know, a Unix interface, and they just started from scratch. And, you know, what they created running on the hardware of the day was so fast and so flexible that people like Andy Grove, who was the CEO of Intel at the time, when he first saw it, you know, we saw it like, like, you know, 12 video windows and checking your email and recording, you know, an audio file in the background and rendering OpenGL animations all at the same time. He, he said, I had no idea my hardware was capable of this kind of performance. It was like, it was just like unlocked for the first time. And we were so excited. And, you know, we felt like we were going to take over the world because everybody who tried it was just thrilled. And, you know, eventually it started, well, there was the B-Box. So they created their own piece of hardware, their own computer called the B-Box. It was a vertical tower and it had um, two CPU activity indicators that bounced up and down as LEDs on the front. It was so geeky and it was so cool. Age. It was so cool. 
but you know, that was a really expensive enterprise. Eventually, they decided, no, we're just going to do the software. We'll run it on Intel hardware. And at that point, Compaq, Hitachi, and Dell, uh, wait, Compaq, Hitachi, was it? I think it was Dell, realized that this was a way to differentiate themselves in the market. And they're like, you know, if we could get onto the store, onto the shelves at CompUSA selling this instead of Windows, we'll actually look different than the other beige boxes. They got, they got very excited. Um, so I'm really, I'm really short-circuiting history here um, because I'm going to go right from the beginning to the end. Oh, this is over the course of about a six-year period. Um, and what ended up happening as those contracts started to be formed was that um, Microsoft caught wind of it. So Microsoft is mass licensing Windows to all these big computer manufacturers, and they're getting a big bulk discount. Um, well, it turns out that Paragraph 329, Clause 11 on page 79 of the Microsoft contract agreements have what's called the bootloader agreement that says, thou shalt boot no other operating system but Microsoft Windows on the computers thou sells. And if you violate the terms of the contract, they were going to lose their, um, their bulk discounts and they couldn't afford to lose their volume discounts and they all backed out. Um, so that was one challenge because without that, the only way to get BOS onto people's computers was geeks who could, who were, you know, comfortable with yeah, partitioning <laughs> their own, you know, you know, how to use Grub and partition your, your, your hard drive. And, you know, you're not afraid of this stuff. Um, that was one challenge. And then the other huge challenge that they faced was um, driver drivers. Mm. So, you know, the, you, Apple and Microsoft don't write most of the drivers for the hardware out there. The printer makers and the scanner makers and the camera makers write it for them and say, here, Apple, here's a driver for us stuff. You can include it in the operating system. And in the Linux world, you have people, you know, hacking this stuff together and that probably could have been leveraged. But, um, you know, you get this computer that's capable of amazing performance and it supports exactly three printers and one camera. And, you know, that was a real challenge trying to get the, the whole driver ecosystem. Yeah started for me um my, my course of evolution through it was i had been working um at zdnet and i'll come back and talk about that because that's there's some cool stories there too um and my boss um was old friends with jean louis gasset and he heard about the b box he said send us one we'll review it and it landed in his office i said what is that and he said oh it's a, you know an interesting new computer do you want to review it and i said yeah <laughs> so i fell you know head over heels and i started writing articles for, for zdnet um and then byte magazine caught wind and they started contracting me to write and a monthly column for for byte and i was doing that um and then eventually i got a, a book offer from peach pit press they said do you want to write the bos bible and I was, you know, young and just getting my career started and, you know, I jumped at the opportunity, had to quit Ziff Davis to do that. Um, and I spent a year of my life writing that book and it did surprisingly well considering the small number of BOS users who are, who are out there. Um, and, you know, that, that was going on. And then uh, the editors of the Linux journal decided this is really taking off and they wanted to start the BOS journal. And they contacted me and said, do you want to be the, the editor-in-chief? I'm like, are you kidding me? Sure, yes. <laughs> and so I had like just signed on to do that. And it was only a month later when um, the bootloader agreement stuff went down. B was running out of venture capital. And basically the, the market tanked out from under them. And you know it was all, all, all over. And, and they canceled the BOS Journal. And I went back to 
being a normal schlub working in a, <laughs> in a, a cubicle like all the other tech workers. You mentioned Jean-Louis Gasset obviously has the connection to Apple as well. And he's still, he's a blog, he's still a blogger. I read, I still subscribe to his RSS feed, his um, weekly note that he writes, Monday note. I can't remember the name of the, the but he's, that's still a great website to read if anybody's interested in him. And also Compaq, Ooh. tiny fact I've never shared with the Hemispheric Views audience, I don't think. And look, I feel a little bit guilty at this point because very, very distant relative, Rod Canyon, one of the founders of Compaq, related to yours truly, but <laughs> so distant that I've never received any uh, financial benefits from the uh, <laughs> the Compaq partnership. But the Canyon name is strong. But I'm so so I feel a bit sorry about that. I couldn't I couldn't really extend out and and help you in that situation back in the time. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No, you know, JLG is is interesting to read. You're right. He's he's got it like penetrating insight into the industry, and and he's not afraid to share it. Yeah. So Scott, were you, it's you were obviously very well connected to the B community. Were you actually part of the B organization at any point, or were you always sort of doing like third party stuff related to the community? Always third party stuff. Oh, okay. Um, yeah. There there was talk of an opportunity um for me to become a developer evangelist uh was a role they could see me in mm. and i really liked that idea it never never quite took off <laughs> while i was writing the book i made appointments to go down to menlo park to be headquarters and you know got to meet a lot of the, the famous engineers um you know who are well famous in air quotes <laughs> uh but really really cool people and you know had people whiteboarding internal architecture and just making sure that i understood everything really, really thoroughly. Um, and boy, one of those engineers, Dominic Giampolo, who wrote the B file system, um, mm. which was, you know, really revolutionary file system. At some point during the during the year I spent writing the book, my file system became corrupted, you know, it's early days and there were bugs and everything. And suddenly I couldn't, I couldn't boot. And I contacted him and he said, pop the drive, come down, let's take a look at it. And I did that. And I remember going into that cubicle and him mounting the drive and opening up the raw file system in a hex editor. You know, it's just binary garbage <laughs> to ordinary mortals. And he's just scrolling through and scrolling through. He's like, ah, there's your problem. And he like just manipulated some direct byte code, like right in the file system and then restarted and it came right up. He's like literally reading the matrix as it's flying down. He's just like, oh, there it is right there. Red dress. And you're like, oh, of course. The, I, I want to say a little bit about the um, the database-like file system and how revolutionary that that was. I mean, and some mm. echoes of that have um, come into Apple now because the Apple file system has some similar capabilities, but not nearly as extensive. So you could define a custom file type on the operating system, and you could define its collection of, of properties and attributes and give it its own icon. And then you could create files, you know, with, with any of these any of these properties, and then you could query. So, you know, in the in the systems find panel, you could query for your files on on any. You could say, you know, show me all emails from Jean-Louis Gasset or or Jason Burke written between these two dates that talk about country music. You know, <laughs> like whatever you want. So, I came up with this idea to. Um, I was running the the BOS tip server, um, which were just tip, tips and tricks for BOS users. 
and it initially had started out of uh it was before wordpress i think it was movable type oh um, yeah and uh and i thought wait a minute i could let me let me put this thing to the test so i created a custom file type and i gave it properties like you would have in you know a tip server like you know, titles and dates and categories and tags and all that and then I just wrote some uh, some shell scripts with a CGI interface, and I served it out of a computer in my house. But it, you know, the website was like literally being served. Like the the file system <laughs> itself was the only database that was being queried, and it ran perfectly. It was so fun. God, the days of running websites out of your house. I miss <laughs> I miss that so badly. <laughs> yep. And then you'd go to visit it and be like, "Sorry, I had to reboot because we had a thing with the circuit breaker. It'll be back up in a little." One of the thing that I, things I wonder about you authoring that book at the time, because I found when I used BOS, I loved using it, but the, the dearth of applications that were available for it made it very difficult to actually do anything. You could kind of, you could tool around with it, but how could you actually do stuff? And mm-hmm. it led me to wonder when you were writing your book, was that, were you dog fooding BOS? Were you writing that book, the, the manuscript? If, in BOS, or did you did you have another like a Windows box on the side where you were typing in Microsoft Word or something? Like, how did, what was the workflow back then? Uh, I, I wrote it initially in a text editor, um, forgetting the name of just you know in plain text. But then I needed to format it, and there was an office suite called Gobi Productive. Ah, Gobi yes. was the name of the company. And what an instruction! I love it. So I converted it from plain text into Gobi Docs, which could output RTF, which the publisher could handle. That's so, and so that was fully formed with because I know I don't know the publishing world very well, but you had screenshots and that sort of stuff. And don't you have to use LaTeX to sort of get them all finalized? Is that a thing, or am I totally misspeaking? I think some people do. Um, you know, my the, the my contact at, at Peach Pit was fine with me dropping screenshots into RTF, and that that was that was fine with them. It worked out for us. Yeah. Although I, I realized later that it would have been a lot more productive to use words revision tracking. Um, you know, which is like that's a that's a good workflow, which we couldn't emulate at the time. But I mean, you're right. A lot of the software that was out was demo level. It's like, look how fast this teapot can spin, and you know, and here's. I mean, you had a music player, but it was nowhere near you know what was available on on Mac and Windows. But it was functional. Um, you know, you had uh, capable email platforms, but they just weren't as good. We had a capable browser called Net Positive, but you know, it was it wasn't as good. Uh, so, so you're right. I mean, there was, but people were forgiving because it was the early days, and you felt like, well, yeah, but look at the performance. You know, wait till you couple the performance with like really high quality software. And, you know, but yeah, there were there were not a lot of commercial vendors leaping to join the space. Everybody was you know, nobody wanted to be first on the dance floor. They wanted to mm. prove itself out in the market first. You know, I, I I vividly remember every time I used it, it was always such a good proof of concept is such a fully formed and functional proof of concept that it was over the hurdle of like, is this going to go anywhere? Like, of course it's going to go somewhere. Like, look at what it is already. And then you sort of just kept waiting for like any day now, (laughs) any day now, this is just going to like rocket up and we're all going to be using this. And it just sort of, it just didn't happen. And whenever I think of BOS, I always think of uh, WebOS. WebOS to me was sort on mobile was sort of the same story where it was a great demo. It worked. It was functional. Everything was great. You were just sort of waiting like 
any day now, this is just going to really go somewhere. Everybody's going to start writing for this. And it's just uh, not this week, maybe next week, maybe next week. And I feel like WebOS felt to me much like it did back with BOS, where, like you said, there's three printers that work. Unfortunately, I don't have any of those three, so I don't have a printer right now. (laughs) So it's like, I'm not going to go out and buy all the things that work with it. But yeah, it was just, oh, it felt like any day is going to be our day. And unfortunately, didn't happen. It's a tough lesson. I I feel like I never quite get that lesson. Like every time I'm convinced something is the best and therefore the public is going to flock to it, they don't. In my young whippersnapper research, I thoroughly enjoyed looking at kind of the demos that you were talking about, you could see there was a lot of taste in the design or forward thinking, like the live updating of dragging windows around and videos and frames aren't being dropped. It just looked very, I, I could see that you were really, or the company was really thinking about the future. And I like to think about that idea of alternative history. Listener of the show who I also work with, uh, Craig, he was really into hypercard back in the day with Apple, for example. And you think, what would the world have been like had hypercard? taken off and maybe we would be thinking differently. When you think about writing that book and what's happening with BOS, if history had turned out differently and BOS had become, let's say, a juggernaut or even more influential and lasted, how do you think computing might have been different? Or where do you think we would be today if BOS had continued? Oh, that's a that's a great question because there's a, an important piece that I left out of that arc, which is um, when Apple was transitioning out of Mac OS 9 to Mac OS 10, they were looking for the underpinnings for it. And they were kind of trying to decide between next step and BOS. I mean, it was, it was on the table and I don't, I don't have insight into why they made the decision that they they did. But um, you know, I, I think that if they had made that decision, clearly the future of BOS actually would have been the replacement for Mac OS. Assuming that that didn't happen and BOS continued on its own trajectory, what would be different one thing I think about sometimes is like how intolerant the market is of having a lot of diversity in operating systems. Like we can deal with having dozens of car brands and makes and models and that you don't feel like, you know, Mercedes or Volvo or Volkswagen have to win to succeed. You don't have mm. to win to succeed. Um, there's room enough for everybody. But when it comes to operating systems, people are like, that's like Apple versus Windows. And that's all there is to it. And, you know, so-and-so is going to win and the other is going to lose. And it's like, it doesn't have to be that simple. Uh, so, you know, I, th- I think there would have been space. Would it have gotten out of the geek space? Really depends on applications, you know, the quality and the availability of applications. And I mean, it's it's same with mobile, right? Where it's like, it has to be Android or iOS. It's like, no, it doesn't. Just have both. Like, choose whatever you want. But I think, like, if there were a BOS, to your point, if there isn't that hot app for it, then, yeah, it's going to be relegated to sort of our nerd sphere versus the general populace, yeah. Um, I think one of the big differences between the, with the problem with the car analogy, though, is that it's okay if there's dozens of cars. They can all, they can all make them and people can make a choice. But... For an operating system to succeed, you have to have hundreds or thousands of developers on board on working on your platform, and each developer can only spread themselves so thin. Like a developer can't afford to spend time working on apps for 12 different operating systems. There is a kind of a weird crossover there, though, right, with cars, where like now that we're having things like CarPlay and Android Auto, that has sort of come into play a little bit of like some cars have some, some have others, some have both. And, and now that's those two things are starting to cross a little bit, which is an interesting place to play in. And now we're getting developers who can't even be bothered dealing with two operating systems. And then they're just going standardizing on something that's halfway in between both, like Electron. And it's like, oh, 
just pick the worst of everything. So it's like my annoyance. But um, I feel like I so I'm I'm kind of perennially backing the losing operating system. So I liked I liked Amigas back in the day. That was my operating system of choice. Then then the BOS, and uh, yeah, finally I landed. I, I thought I finally you know, I used Windows for a while. And then like all right, I'm gonna I'm gonna move to to Apple, and then yeah, quite right when they're kind of in their suffering days, and everybody's looking at you going, mm-hmm. why do you, why are you liking Apple? That's that's a bit embarrassing, isn't it? But Scott, it sort of leads me to question. So you had your BOS period. What have you been using for the last twenty years? <laughs> What's your? Oh, tech- I went. I went right to the back. From okay. There. Yeah. Yeah. So I was. I was Windows before BOS, and I never went back. You know, after that. After that point. So I've been on, on the Mac train ever since. And you know, so after the whole BOS thing, I landed at the only logical place for me to be, which is a company called Animation that made a state-of-the-art video editor for BOS called uh, uh, Video Studio, Personal Studio. Um, and they were right here in Oakland. And so I could, you know, they were they they started just making BOS software, then they, they forked it to Windows. So there was a Windows port of that. And I worked there for a couple of years um, before a, an opportunity opened up at, at UC Berkeley. And I went and became what we called at the time a webmaster. There's a comedy series in Australia where they still actively use that term, ironically. So whenever I hear webmaster, I always think of sort of a kung fu look. So I'm imagining, did you your beard? Did you have it quite long and sort of just you were the wise webmaster wandering around saying, <laughs> I, I, "I wish I could grow a beard like that, but I've never never quite been able to." This is about as long as it gets. Bit of a silly question, but everybody sort of you always have some sort of luck in your career, right? Things happen, and you're like. That could happen to anybody, but just by virtue of where I was at the time, I was fortunate to get that. Scott, you your surname is Hacker. Did that play a role in the IT development career that you you had? I'm thinking that's a pretty cool nickname or a surname. I've sometimes said that a name is like a tattoo you put on a soul, you know, that people like grow into their names. Um, but I certainly didn't pursue a tech career, right? So I was in... I had gotten out of college with a useless philosophy degree and not quite sure what I wanted to do. And a friend on the East Coast had said, hey, you know, a lot of my friends are editors and they hire freelancers. Why don't you come out? We'll get you a job as a as a freelance editor. And so I did that. And where I landed was at, at ZDNet, um, Ziff, Ziff Davis. And they published a lot of the magazines you've heard of, like Computer World and Computer Shopper and oh. PC Magazine and Mac Life and Mac World. And there was like a dozen of them. And, uh, you know, I just had no idea what I was signing up for. And I had actually no contact with the tech world at that point. But the very first job I got, I'm so happy for this, that I started on DOS, right, on, on, on the command line before, you know, before I had a Windows machine. I was on a 386 with a scanner attached to it. And every day I would come and there'd be a stack of Ziff Davis magazines. And my job was to leaf through them, find interesting articles, scan them, perform optical character recognition, which was really bad at the end of the day because all the zeros and O's would be mixed up and the S's and fives and have to go through and manually fix the scan text and pick the most interesting articles. And then this is pre-web. So this is like 1991. So our business then was on CompuServe, Prodigy and America Online. And so I had to learn the bizarro formatting systems for each of these systems. You know, none of them were HTML because it didn't exist yet. Um, and and publish our articles on on those three online systems from DOS. Um, 
And it was a great education, you know, and slowly but surely, like just by reading these articles and the contact is like, I'm kind of into this, you know, and it took off. And then in 1993, the web hit. And so, you know, they wanted to be like, have an early presence on the web. And so I was, you know, just totally right place at the right time. And I got to help build one of the first corporate websites. And then on the side, uh, I registered birdhouse.org and created that as an arts collective because, you know, the early web was just so funky and full of artists, but none of the artists knew how to do tech, right? So I could help them print their poetry and their images and, you know, all their funky early HTML experiments and, and things like that. So that that was a blast. I was just thinking back the other day about one of the biggest mistakes, um, or missed opportunities that I've, I've been through. Um, as you probably remember, a lot of the big domain names were selling for giant money. People were scooping them up, you know, and selling coca-cola.com to the coca-cola company for a, a bazillion dollars. Well, one day, uh, like 1993, 94, I was thinking, what's the shortest email you could have? Like, I wonder if you could be A at B.com. Like, a, like a domain could be just a letter. And I, I looked it up. Um, NS lookup or dig or whatever it was. And it was available. It's like, wow, I could buy B.com. And what about C.com? Oh, I checked yeah. all the letters of the alphabet and they were all available except for the letter Z, which was owned by Nissan because they had the Nissan Z car. Oh, at the time. Oh, sure. Yeah. yeah. And, uh, you know, I think they were 20 bucks each at the time. Oh. I could have, I could have bought a through y.com and had oh them all God. and who knows what the market would have been but what am i going to do with those you know don't be ridiculous so talk about alternate reality scott is now billionaire over here because he sold a through y.com <laughs> he owned the alphabet basically yeah oh my gosh i you mentioned computer shoppers so i just have to throw in a quick tangent um jason scott who does a bunch of the archive stuff he recently had people um or he asked if people would donate some money to buy this like massive collection of computer shopper magazines and he got them all and he's now scanning them all. So they're all going to be on archive.org. And I am so excited to go back and look at all these. <laughs> well, if you need, if you need to, if you need a scanning workflow, Scott's got one ready to go. Yeah, yeah that's yeah. right. Yeah, I've got that old 386 is still right here next to me. And that, oh, the other cool thing about that office, well, cool in retrospect, it wasn't cool at the time was that, it was like an office of like 60 people all on seven, what, what was it? 7,200 baud modems. So we're all dialing in all day long. Just the howl of connecting, handshaking modems, just connecting and disconnecting and, you know, trying to configure, <laughs> swearing at Winsock and. Oh God, he mentioned Winsock. No. <laughs> ah, DLL errors. Oh. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it was a noisy office. So we talked about magazines, we talked about computer books. I feel like there's a lot of people that probably listen to the show. They're like, what the hell are you talking? Why would there be a book about a computer? Like, I think that's probably not, a, that's a, probably a valid question. So I, I, I think just thinking through, I think we're familiar with, you know, having computer books, having shelves of these giant thick books, all computer books were huge, which I always thought was interesting because they, a lot of them just were, they had more information than you ever would need. And I'm curious, now that we actually have somebody here that wrote one of these books, did they say like, hey, we want to write BOS Bible. Uh, here's the criteria. It needs to be 65 million pages and have so many screenshots. Or was it more like, write the book that has all the information you think needs to be in there? 
or what like what did that look like from from a specifically for a like tech author which is very different than you know you write a novel there's a story with starting an end computer book could be anything in between so i'm curious like what did that look like i don't recall there being a page limit okay and and i also was shocked as i started like churning it out like how big it was becoming how quickly because you know there were so many angles on it there's like how do you use it there's the philosophy of it where did it come from where is it going how do you do this how do you do that do you want to address it like tips and tricks or like just like a strict reference manual or like here's exciting things you can do and we kind of did it all in that book um and you know it turns out well jumping ahead possibly i later wrote a book about mp3s for o'reilly right which was also i think it was like 400 pages and somebody's like how do you write 400 pages about an mp3 <laughs> mp3s appeal to at the time appeal to everyone but bos appealed only to a very small cross-section of the population but the bos book outsold the mp3 book by 20 to 1 you know why because almost nobody who uses mp3s feels like they need help like, I got this, you know, you download the files you play and that's all I want to know. Maybe I, I, I stick the CD in and I rip it. And now I've got the MP3s. But everybody who used this brand new operating system felt like, whoa, 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 whoa. you know, I alienated and, you know, I need, I need guidance. How do I, how do I find my footing? So it's, and, and I think also everybody who was into BOS was passionate about technology and they just wanted to gather and collect everything they could. Can I steal this moment? Don't get it hideous. Oh, come on. Shameless. Can I host it on canyon.blog slash save? <laughs> Pitch away. My wife and I were cleaning out a closet um, during the recent atmospheric rivers that rolled through California one weekend. And I came across a box of old BOS related swag that I had saved from back in the day. I've got pens and mouse pads and uh, uh, software installed installation disks. And the coolest thing I've got is um, some of the B-Box motherboards that were that didn't work. They converted them into clipboards and they, they cut them into rectangles and put clippy <laughs> things on. I've got one of those. Please send me your uh, payment details immediately. <laughs> and right? See, this is exciting. And, and I thought, wow, I mean, I kind of want to keep this forever, but like it's been sitting in a closet for all this time doing nothing. I've really got nothing to do with this. And I was in contact with another person who worked at B and he also had a box of swag. And we thought, you know what, let's do, let's have an auction and donate the proceeds to charity. Um, so, so he sent me a box of his swag. Oh, t-shirts. Did I mention t-shirts? I got t-shirts. Um, and I'm going to reach out to some other BOS people and engineers and try to pool it and just try to come up with a big old charity donation. And, uh, you know, I'm not ready to announce this guy. I haven't gathered the materials but this is the idea and we're going to do this. I can tell right now that Jason is thinking, how do I come up with the Burke Foundation really quickly to somehow get some motherboards or, or revenue here? What's going on? If I still used a checkbook, my checkbook would be ready. <laughs> Look at me. I'm still wearing a pajama shirt with bluey on it. I need, I need a new shirt. <laughs> I've got one for you, Andrew. Oh, my gosh. It, unfortunately, I think there's some mop holes in it. I'm sorry to say, it, it was a very that might bother him. It was, that's true. It was a T-shirt that I think was only for for B developers, and it's of Jean-Louis Gasset's head on top of like a a Greek figure in a toga, and he's like holding forth on top of some podium. And I, there's some caption like 
can <laughs> just can can this email just be a meeting please or something like that <laughs> oh my that that, that poster would sell like nobody's business oh my gosh that's ridiculous well, yeah, absolutely. Let definitely let us know when you get that going because I would love to shout from the rooftops. Well, actually, no. Do I want to shout from the rooftops? I don't know if I want competition, but it is it is for charity. So, all right, I'll shout from the rooftops. It's worth it. If it's set up well after this episode, and you know, we can always put it back in the show notes or do a little share on Mastodon or add it to our blog. Definitely for charity. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely, for sure, absolutely. That sounds awesome. Okay. Ooh, oh, I'm so excited now. Well, we've got a scoop. <laughs> um, Scott, so I guess over the last 20, 20 odd years, 20, 25, I don't know how long it's been. It's been a long time, probably before Martin was born. I'm older than that, by the way. BOS probably hasn't been a great, a great revenue stream for you. I imagine the BOS Bible, while it sold well initially, probably sales have probably just tapered off a little since then. So what have you been doing in the interim? I, I understand you do a bit of photography. Is that is that kind of a passion project or like what is your what 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 have you done in the last twenty years really what you been up to mate so as I mentioned I, I bounced off of the freelancing over to Adamation which was a software company that made BOS and Windows software in Oakland and then uh, my wife was doing preservation work at the library at UC Berkeley. And she heard of a job at the Graduate School of Journalism as, as a webmaster. And I thought, oh, man, that's got my name written all over it. Um, and I applied. It took a little while, but I, I got that role. And it turned into um, the funnest job I've ever had. Um, maybe not the best career-wise, but uh, through that job, you know, my software skills developed. But I, was all, I also was able to teach. I was teaching um uh, multimedia skills and web development to mid-career journalists who are just trying to get their tech footing. I was running a whole webcasting operation, so I learned all about that. I started running Apple servers and you know doing a lot of a lot of serving-related stuff. And then this was the best. Um, these mid-career journalists who had come through from multimedia training, you know, we come up with story ideas and we go to interesting places and people in the Bay Area, and I go out with them and help them with their cameras and their gear and, and everything, and just got to go have adventures. Um, the the people that you know, the journalists who worked as professors there were just fascinating people. They'd really, really been in the trenches. I mean, some of the stories I I heard, well, I'll go, I'll give you one anecdote. Um there was a professor I saw walk into his class and there were students walking behind him carrying a futon. And um, when he got to his class, the students laid the futon and the, the teacher laid down on it and started teaching. And I was like, what, what is going on here? And I said, oh, oh, haven't you heard? He was, he was one of the journalists in, in Tiananmen Square when the, the Chinese government rolled through with tanks on the people and he raised a camera to record it and the Chinese police beat him to within an inch of his life and back, broke his back in 24 places and he wow. can't stand for more than a few minutes. Wow. <laughs> and another day I was, I was talking to um, a woman who taught photography and uh, she had come back from a sabbatical and there was a big bandage over her eye. And I was like, what, what, what happened to your eye? And she's like, oh, somebody's brain splattered into it. It's like, what do you mean somebody? She's like, yeah, I was I was in Iraq and I was standing by this wall and then some sniper just like took out the the guy standing next to him and to me and his brain exploded and pieces of it went in my eye and I got infected. It's like oh. you know, I don't meet okay. people like that in my job now. It's no. just, just really intense, awesome, awesome people. 
but uh, had a really good time there. But the the problem with that role for me as a professional was they wanted one WordPress site after the next, you know, so I was managing like 40, every time a class was going to go out on some special project, like, can you stand up a WordPress site for us? And I had learned some Python and Django there to, to build the internal uh, internet and the public facing website. But even that was pretty simple, you know, software wise, basically basic content management stuff. Um, and I got tired of WordPress and I started to realize it's like software developers outside of my sphere of one, they had things like, planning meetings and code review and unit tests and like all these things that I wasn't learning, you know, I just had nobody to bounce anything off. It was somebody would come by my desk and say, can you put this badge on the website, please? You know, and then it would happen. And that's like, that was software development to me. So I realized that I had to get out of there if I wanted to, to grow. So I then took an opportunity with the central campus department, educational technology services, and they were working in, in rails and angular, um, which was pretty overwhelming at first, but I started to get a sense of like agile teams and, and all that. And then from there, I bounced out to the Center for Investigative Reporting in Oakland doing pure Python Django, which I had basically fallen in love with by this point. Um, and then the California College of Arts. And the only reason I left California College of Arts was, uh, as I was mentioning to um, uh, Jason before we started, that you know the commute home was like an hour a day getting out of San Francisco. Uh, and then I was contacted by Energy Solutions in, in Oakland that is a, a carbon footprint reduction consultancy. Um, not just software house at all. I think people working on policy and ratings and helping set, set building codes and rebates for energy efficient equipment, um, you know, insulation, solar, electric vehicle stuff, everything you can think of that touches carbon, you know, and, and some big utility or company needs a hand with it, they hire us. So we're like, we're almost 500 people now. We're, we're really yeah. growing fast. Um, but they were a pure Python Django shop and they were doing really deep software. So I was like, I can have an environmental impact, get rid of this commute, be have you know, much more flexible work from home hours. So I started there six years ago and I'm still doing it full time from home. <laughs> Haven't looked back. <laughs> It does sound like you found a way to combine your your philosophy sort of background degree um, into a computing. Yeah, I wouldn't call it useless. I reckon it was probably incredibly useful in researching and writing a book. So you shouldn't be so modest. I think that's true. Yeah, I mean, I mean, very few philosophy graduates end up working in the field of philosophy. But you know, it does. It's brain training that's you know mm. applicable to all sorts of things. And in fact, I feel like I meet a lot of software developers with philosophy backgrounds it's not uncommon yeah so is it fair to say maybe you were seated at the intersection of technology and the liberal arts and we perfectly fair to say that <laughs> perfect <laughs> oh oh you were also asking about about photography so um you know i had it in my background um my my dad was a semi-professional photographer um you know back in the day and he was developing film for mgm and doing some studio work and my wife has uh, an MFA in fine art photography. And, you know, she was really the, the photographer in the family. And I was always a casual point and shoot um, type, you know, photographer. Um, and then a friend had encouraged me to get a, a Fujifilm X100F. He's like, you know, you should take you know, what you're doing with the iPhone and translate it into a real camera and, 
And I, I just didn't have time to put into like learning. I didn't realize how much of a learning curve there would be to really, to really master it. And then the pandemic hit and I found myself like with a little extra time that I was saving off of commutes and, and things like that. And feeling like also that I needed a creative outlet, you know, that my life had just become like all software. Um, and so I just, I sat down and took, you know, took an online class and really started to, you know, master um, you know, the, the exposure triangle and, and everything there was that I could possibly learn about photography. And I started, you know, getting out. I already was doing a lot of hiking and cycling and taking the camera with me and, you know, adventuring through the suddenly empty streets of the Bay Area and, you know, sort of getting the ghostly downtowns and things like that. Um, and I just started getting more and more into it, um, you know, just watching like photography videos nonstop on my lunch hour and, you know, just taking in everything I could. And I also had um, uh, a friend, uh, a photographer in the area named Board Ruth, who is just a master landscape photographer who kind of took me under his wing and just gave me little tips and tricks that I accumulated into my workflow. Um, previous, I, I, this actually also segues into the, the J School work because um, I had participated in some of the photography workshops led by the professors there, and they were encouraging doing, you know, photo a day uh, projects. So mm -hmm. 2011, 14, and 17, I had done photo a day, and that had really sort of trained my eye to sort of just always be on the lookout. Um, but, you know, then I sort of adopted the mantra of like, never leave the house without a camera, and um, taking every opportunity. And, and I didn't really glom onto any particular genre. I was doing, you know, street and landscape and people and macro and, you know, just whatever, uh, you know, I came across at the time. And uh, so now I'm posting two images per day, sometimes three to Flickr, Glass, Vero, Instagram, and one a day to Mastodon and sometimes Facebook. Wow. So I just have this like this workflow. Actually, it's really easy. It's all about the share sheet, baby. It's about Lightroom yeah. Cloud. Mm. And so I edit on the <laughs> desktop in Lightroom. It translates into Lightroom Cloud on mobile. And then from the iPad, just using that share sheet, set, get the Instagram post ready with all the hashtags. And then you can copy that into Vero. The hashtags translate. Glass doesn't take hashtags. So I just whack those out and pick one of their categories. Um, and there's this magical thing on the Flickr share sheet that I discovered by accident because Flickr has hashtag objects, not strings that mm. you think you have to type in. But if you paste hashtags into the description and then you tap out of the description field, like into the title field, it detects the change on blur. It converts all the hashtag strings into hashtag objects down below. <laughs> so those come in automatically. You're such a nerd, so I can Scott. I'm such a nerd. <laughs> So I can I can post all four platforms in ten minutes flat. It's actually really quick. Yeah, I love I love everything you said about wanting to publish a diversity or variety of stuff, whether it's the platforms or also the genres. Because I know I've been bringing photography up a little bit more in recent episodes, and I apologise to listeners if it has been a bit of a photo podcast. But now we have the license to do it with our special guest, which is great. Um, I love that you're aiming for a variety because I know whenever I've seen, you know, photographers' blogs or YouTube channels or even stuff, sometimes that people mention on a network like Glass, it's always find your theme, find your genre. But personally, like I relate to what you're saying where it's, you know, if you see something interesting or you want to try a different style or black and white or macro or whatever, just go for it because it's the practice of doing all of those things. And I had been photographing for years just purely as a hobby. And then one day some helpful salesperson said, it sounds like you need a micro four thirds camera. You need to go smaller. And I completely rediscovered my 
passion for it with a new system. So how much is Fuji kind of like a part of your photographic identity now? Is it, is it what they make that really ignited it for you? The same way that I had with the brand that I use? It's the only proper camera system that I've owned. And so, oh, cool. you know, yeah. I don't, I don't have the perspective to say, well, you know, I can't say I wouldn't enjoy you know, working on Sony or Nikon or Canon or whatever. Mm. Um, but what I do know is that, you know, I read a lot and I keep seeing people say the same thing that, that using like a Sony is like using a computer. It's like very digital experience. It's a lot of digging through menus for things and, you know, everything's kind of very clinical and Fuji really goes for a kind of retro aesthetic and a feel to the controls. So it's, you know, very um, reminiscent of old film cameras, the, the way they operate and it's very tactile. And so people just say they, they enjoy using this. So, you know, the can't, you, I don't think you can make a rational critique at this point about who makes the best quality images because everybody makes great quality images the question is what's the workflow and how does it feel in your hands and and you know how how can you develop a relationship with the tool or have the tool disappear but the xt line of fuji's especially um has something that i just love which is the um the iso dial on the left the aperture ring on the lens where god intended it not in some sub menu or a little wee device <laughs> and the shutter speed dial on the top right. And so it's the exposure triangle, quite literal and manifest in your hands. You don't need to look, you don't need to dig. It's just always there. And, you know, that, that makes manual photography a lot more enjoyable to me. Yeah. Um, you know, the other thing about Fuji is that they have a history of making all these famous films like Provia and, uh, uh, Acros, Acros, and, and they have a Chrome one. You know, they have Velvia, um, and they have simulated these looks and baked them into all of their cameras. So um, when you bring them into into Lightroom, the the profile that you selected in the camera, the look is already there associated with the raw. But you can change your mind. You can toggle to another one. That means you can shoot in black and white, Acros mode, if you like to compose in black and white, change your mind and go to color. You're not colorizing. You're just, it's just raw data, right? You're just applying a different different profile. So that all those are, they're really, they're all beautiful, right? I mean, they're just great, great film looks that are that are built in. And I feel like there's there, there's a different characteristic look to Fuji images that's hard to put your finger on, but they really... They really get color science right, but you know, I, I feel like you know Sony and Nikon users would dispute that and say they like their look better, and that's cool. I remember years ago when I was in, into photography. I'm not anymore. I, I sort of gave that hobby away, but I remember being obsessed with the Velvia look and using yeah in Lightroom, just constantly trying to find the best Velvia preset, and basically all my photos just looking like that. <laughs> oh, Jason's holding something up. What do we have there? X Pro Three. It just it's they just it's it's hard to describe a fuji look it it when you if you if you like the fuji look you just it becomes part of you it's it's a weird thing i think you mentioned that the tool disappears and i used fuji years ago then i went through my sony phase my leica phase and i'm actually back to fuji now because it's this digital representation of analog that just disappears the rangefinder look you just feel like you're more there than the sony is very clinical to me i still have the sony it's fine but it's very much a tool 
more so than like an expression for me. So yeah. It, and that's a new camera you're holding there, right, Jason? The one you just flicked up. Hey, is that is that new to new to all of us? You've this is a reveal. This is a reveal. Yeah, I have changed my ways. I am no longer a Sony and Leica shooter. I am back into the Fuji world. And I cannot say how the, the, you talked about the film simulations. It's just there are there are filters and there are film simulations, I find. And I know this is very controversial, but when, when we talk about film simulations, I think it's easy to think like, oh, it's just an Instagram filter. They really aren't. They are really something special, I find. I mean, maybe technically they're the same in the way that they're changing ones and zeros. Fine, whatever. But if you're looking at it from an artistic standpoint, I do feel like the Fuji film simulations cannot be matched on any other platform. Sony, Leica, whatever. I just feel like they are they are inherently different and wonderful. It's, you know, developing those films professionally. I mean, they're they're tuned and fine-tuned and you know professionalized. And you know, it's very different from most presets are created by, you know, a single developer, you know, working at home, which doesn't mean there aren't lots of great presets. But the other thing about profiles versus presets, and this is something I've really come to love in in Lightroom and in, as a as a workflow is they, they both have the same effect in, you know, dramatically changing the overall look of the image. But when you apply a profile, you've got that look and all of your sliders are zeroed out. The profile is your baseline. Whereas when you apply a preset, all the sliders are set to wherever that person that basically they're preset. Um, so, and you can still adjust them later, but, you know, we're talking about changing the baseline, the, the, the color lookup table is it's the LUT, not, you know, just where the sliders are. It's a different thing. Yeah. And I know that people, uh, I know that people in our kind of general listenership are going to be very enthusiastic to hear this. One person I'm thinking of particularly is Mike. I don't know, Andrew. I saw you comment about it, Jason. You would have seen it too. He actually wrote a blog piece recently, in uh, as a bit of follow up, as a reply to our discussion of hipstamatic. So a quick shout out to Mike. Thank you for writing that big blog post. And I look forward to seeing what people like him or others in our listenership think about this kind of expanded interview crossover photography corner. And I also want to ask you, Scott, you mentioned that you're on a few different platforms sharing your photos. If people listening are keen to see your stuff, what would you say is the first thing they should check out? Or what's your main profile or portfolio that you'd want to show off? Well, okay. We were talking earlier about why don't people flock to the best platform? And I feel like Flickr is the hands down best photography platform available. It's got so much functionality and features that are not available on any other platform. You've got entire interest groups. You've got a functional API. None of these other platforms have a functional public API. I don't think Glass does, does it? I mean, um, and, you know, I've built in it. My entire photography portfolio at Shacker.net is built against the Flickr APIs. I do not upload photos to my photo platform. I just plug in the ID into a Django-based content management system and it pulls from the Flickr API and caches it in Redis. And it's a beautiful thing. It's like, I can't do that with any other platform, but also, you know, Flickr doesn't limit the aspect ratio. You can go nuts, you know, whereas like Instagram is going to like auto crop stuff. They'll never recompress your, your stuff. Um, you can go as high resolution as you want. You've got built-in print shops. You've got, you know, tags and groups. I mean, it just goes on and on and on. There's so many reasons why Flickr is the superior platform. But everybody or so many people have this idea that like, oh, that's yesterday's news. You know, uh, Yahoo ruined them years ago. Well, yeah, Yahoo did ruin them. But 
Yahoo hasn't owned them for years now. And people are unaware that it's like, it's gotten better and better and users are coming back. And there are tons of awesome photographers there. You just have to find them. So, you know, at this point, I mean, when I post the same image, I literally get 10 times more engagement on the Flickr version than on the Instagram version. Mm. I feel like you know, Instagram is crap to begin with and it's gotten worse and people are not even there anymore. And the algorithm is like punishing me. I don't know what it's doing, but you're not selling something, Scott. That's the problem. You don't have the, it's the home shopping network now. <laughs> Sky mall. It's not really about photos anymore, is it? No. no, it's not. And I feel forced to be there because I feel like all the other platforms are where people who really care about photography go, you know, people on, on Flickr, on glass, on Vero, these people care about photography. But I also want to reach my nieces and, you know, my old friends from high school and everything. And they're just going to stay on Instagram. They just are. So, you know, if you want to reach both audiences, you have to post in both places. So anyway, long story short is I feel like Flickr is the best platform. I have a lot of love for it. But all that said, Glass is just rocking it. They're what they're creating is it's just beautiful. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it's so thoughtful. And, you know, listening to their new podcast um, recently, you know, in, in hearing Tom Watson talk about the philosophy of creating glass and how they're consciously anti-toxic, you know, and their awareness of how toxic most social media is. I mean, glass launched, there was no like button, like for the first, you know, six months or something, like because they wanted to get people talking and it's really working. And I'm seeing more thoughtful comments on my photos on glass than anywhere else. And then recently, um, maybe I should have done this to begin with, I discovered, oh, it's not just an app. They've got a beautiful website too, at glass.photo. Yeah. And it's now my favorite photography website. And then like, I just tried some intuitive shortcut keys. Like, well, let's see, A is for appreciation. A, yep, A sends an appreciation. Um, and it's just like, and of course it's way easier to type on a keyboard. So uh, I'd be torn between Flickr and glass, what they have in common is no ads and no algorithms. And that's true of Mastodon too. And that's kind of my new mantra. It's like, I just want to get away from ads and algorithms. Scott, yeah. Scott yeah. I've been following you on Flickr for some time and I'm just now scrolling again through your portfolio and it's, it's incredible. This photos you take are magnificent. So congratulations. Cause I sort of had, you know, sometimes you get lost in the feed, you know, they pop up, but it's just another photo in a feed and you don't attribute it mm -hmm. to the person. And just looking at your portfolio now as just you, and I just scroll my mouse and it is amazing some of the stuff you're doing. So definitely worth a follow. Um, and I keep paying my Flickr subscription. I, don't, I, I hardly post photos to it anymore, but I keep paying them just because I admire the service. But it's a good point though, because Flickr is obviously your profile, your albums, an extensive collection, whereas Glass kind of scratches that itch for a more thoughtful Instagram. It can just be that one photo each day. It doesn't have to be the pressure of the whole album. So it sounds like a nice balance. Yeah, I, I love Glass too, and but I do think it makes sense to have both. Like I have Smug Mug, which they own Flickr. So there's a little bit of, I'm still finding a little bit of weirdness between the two offerings where they're, they, they're very much becoming sort of the same offering, but it's, it's becoming less clear why you would have one versus the other. The only reason I have smug mug at this point is just so I can make it look exactly how I want. And it just basically mirrors my other website. But yeah, to that point, if I, if I go out on a, a big hike or something and I have a mass of 50 photos, I don't want to just dump all those into glass. Like that would be annoying to everybody. So it's, it's nice to have the kind of 
two places for photography. We have the one where it's just like, oh, this was like a really good waterfall. Like, I just want to throw that in there and then have my whole collection somewhere else. So, I, yeah, I think I think that's not uncommon for a lot of people to have both. Understanding what dumping was and what it was doing to the service is the key to understanding the transition out of Yahoo ownership of Flickr into yeah. smug mug. So Yahoo was actively encouraging, like use us as your backup service, you know, yeah. and you can, we can auto upload all of your stuff. And what does that do to everyone's feed? It just fills it with noise and unthoughtful garbage. Right. Yeah. And, you know, smug mug came along and said, not only is this ridiculously expensive, but it's ruining the experience for everyone. So now they've really tried to actively discourage dumping and encourage you to, you know, just, just your best things, just one or just a few a day. And that's why it's getting so much better. Smugbug is, they're great. They're, they've been great forever. I, I remember when they first started, um, when I, I was in the Bay Area back then, and it was part of their kind of, uh, what did they call it? Smugmug. It was the Smugmug user group. So I don't know, they had some cute name for it. Smugmug hug? <laughs> Maybe I forget now. But like, we would go to like the Smugmug headquarters, and we would have, you know, events, and we would talk about photography. And it, it felt very if glass were back then, it felt like that where it was built by photographers, like they were photographers first, you know, SaaS companies second, like that was secondary to the photography. And if it didn't make sense from a photography standpoint, they weren't going to do it. And it was a family thing and it was really great. And I, I think they've continued that quite well. And they've shown that, you know, we want to take Flickr because we want it to be good about photography and we want to protect what Flickr is today in terms of photography. So I, I give them a big, big kudos for, for, I don't want to say saving Flickr, but just keeping it from being, you know, it's not, it didn't get bought by AT&T, that kind of thing, right? <laughs> like, like it, like a Yahoo or a Verizon or any other crap that has gone on in the past. So I, I think we're fortunate that we're fortunate and very lucky that Flickr.com still works and still loads because I think in a not too alternate universe, it could have just gone the way of many other websites that we love. And it's also respecting the integrity of a long archive, people's effort in photos and an active part of the web, which is more than can be said for a certain tech behemoth's treatment of a photographic review site, but that has been covered elsewhere extensively already. Hey, there's a question I've been wanting to ask you. Um, since I've been listening to the podcast, that theme music is so wonderful. And it, it feels like <laughs> it, it should be the soundtrack for my life. You know, I was like, I was <laughs> doing that. like, who, who is that? Where can I, where can I find more of that awesome theme music? That is such a good question. Um, and kind of a, kind of a funny story. So we, we started this podcast through, was it three years ago now? I think September, 2020 is what's in my head. Something like that, roughly three years ago. So what do you have to do when you create a podcast? Well, you need people to talk a bunch of about stuff. Okay, we got that. That's clear. Three white guys. That's easy. Yeah. Easy. We need a, a website. Okay, that's a dime a dozen. We couldn't get B.com, but we got, you know, one that's a little bit longer. And then, of course, you need the theme music. Well, none of us are musicians. None of us create music. So then it was go on the web, find somebody that can make you music. So... I think we found maybe three or four different ones to begin with. Some of them were like, oh, they're okay. And then this one was the outlier of like, it kind of sounds ridiculous. It doesn't really make sense. 
is it, are people going to immediately delete the the episode as soon as this starts? We're not really sure, but we're like, you know what? Screw it. This is a weird thing we're doing. <laughs> Let's just go crazy. With it. So we ended up with this guy's music. Um, he's actually, if I'm remembering correctly, he's actually in the Bay Area as well. And I tried to get him actually to be a guest to talk about the theme music and like tell us like where did this come from, but it just never quite worked out. But surprisingly, everybody has been. I don't think I've heard one negative thing about the song. Like people love it; they're t- totally into it. it. Has not gotten old in eighty some odd episodes. I still hear it every time and think, and it brings a smile to my face. And we've got a couple different versions that we've, I think we've played with and used in different ways throughout different episodes over the years. But yeah, there's a different cut version for One Prime Plus that we do. And we took sections out. Also, shout out to new One Prime Plus in Mark H. Thanks for joining. Got to sneak, oh, sneak that in. Mark they H. Keep coming. Right there. But, uh, OnePrimePlus.com. It's in the game. The long game. Where is it, Jason? It's in the long game. Who's the, what's the name of the artist? I am completely blanking on the name right now, and I will. I guarantee I will send it to you, and it will be in the show notes. The song is actually called Handy, you know, classic. Um, and I've just been doing some uh, email spelunking while you've been talking, and I found an email. I think it was the last email in the discussion because Jason did the kind of round for us to check from uh, and, and verify out of the three that we wanted. 3rd of September, 2020, Jason said... I honestly didn't think anyone else would dig that one. <laughs> so Jason obviously loved it. And we responded and went, hey, that's just weird. It's excellent. He's like, cool, that's the choice. So thank you, Mr. Handy. Anyway, to answer your question, I am Shacker everywhere. I'm Shacker on, on uh, Instagram, uh, Flickr, Vero, uh, Glass. We, we got to get you onto microblog, micro.blog. It never ends. That's our. Uh, that's that's how we all came to be. I think was if we we plot back our origin story for the three of us. I think we all found each other on Micro.blog. Yeah, um, which is a wonderful social social network slash blogging site, ad free, algorithm free. Um, Manton Reese uh, developed it himself, and it's a ama- an amazing site. So I'm always aware of giving that that website a shout out. I love it, um, and it's it's. It is the platform that runs my blog. Yeah, we don't have sponsors. We just we just know that without micro.blog, there's no hemispheric views, historically speaking. So, And we have another micro camp coming up, and I'm hoping that I'm allowed to say that because I just said it. So it's coming up in May. <laughs> Take Go to micro.camp, and it will be updated soon, hopefully. Or, for, or forget that I said it until it's actually announced, one or the other. Um, Scott, I, this has been like, I feel like we could literally talk to you for probably about 10 more hours easily. I feel like there has been, there's scratching the surface and then there's like, I feel like we're just still looking at the surface right now. Like we haven't even gotten close enough to scratch it. So, uh, thank you. Like from the bottom of, of all our hearts, I think we're, we're very appreciative of you taking the time to chat with us. This has been thinking back to when I was looking at that big red book, I would not have imagined that I'm now speaking to you today. And also, it's good to know that Scott Hacker is not just a alias for when you're writing books, because that seemed a little bit on the nose that somebody named Hacker would be writing a book about BOS. I was suspicious of that, but now I know the truth. So that's good to know as well. 
one time when I signed up for an account with an ISP and then they cut me off and I called <laughs> in and they're like, oh, we know your type. We don't allow hackers here. I'm like, do you really think I would use that username if I was an actor, if I wanted to crack your network? <laughs> so that happened once. And then my son to this day cannot get an account on Facebook. So I have one, but they won't give him one because they don't believe that's his real name. So. Nice. Well, thanks for joining us, Scott and uh, listeners. Check out the show notes. You know where to find him. It's been a total pleasure. It's so fun to meet you guys. Thank you. I really appreciate the invitation. And 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 I also, 20 years ago, would never in a million years have thought that the BOS work I was doing then would have resulted in something like this decades later. <laughs>